announcement sheet, there is uh, an outline that you can use as, as we go through these texts uh, this morning. And, and while you're doing that, uh, mentioned a little bit earlier this morning that uh, you know we have our midweek at Mac Mill uh, at 6.15 between the early bird and the, uh, the 7 o'clock classes on Wednesday nights. And it's a great time for everybody to come together and, and to, to, to be together for fellowship and to talk and to catch up on each other's lives and enjoy a great meal that, that's inexpensive but, but delicious. And it really, it really is a, a great way to end a Wednesday is to, to be in a, a dinner with a bunch of your brothers and sisters and your friends as well as in Bible study. And for the last couple of weeks, probably the last eight weeks, nine weeks or so, we've been having to do it out here in the family room just outside this auditorium because the fellowship hall has been going through some remodeling and, and some expansion. Well, as of today, that is all over. And uh, I'd like to really commend uh, Richard Chow and Herschel Craig Sr. and Santos and Santos' son for the work and others that have been involved with it. But it is absolutely a gorgeous, gorgeous fellowship hall. And I know a lot of you have been anxious to see it. Well, you can go by uh, after our assembly this morning and, and see the fellowship hall. Uh, one other commercial before we get into the message this morning. Uh, our church, as you know, we really believe in, in not just being uh, the kind of people that are light in our community and sharing our faith in the community in which we live, but we believe that that's something God wants us to do and calls us to do and equips us to do and gives us the resources to do around the world. And uh, we, we send campaign trips to Japan. We've, we've sent them to, to Honduras. Uh, we have sent them to all kinds of different places. Well, we have another one that's coming up, and it's to, to Taiwan, and it's going to be in July. And uh, there is going to be an interest meeting if you thought that you would like to be a part of a campaign, a mission campaign, and would like to, to do that in uh, that part of the world, the Asian part of the world. There is going to be an interest meeting uh, next Sunday, April 13th, up in room 210, which is right here behind the balcony. And it's going to be immediately after our service. And you can meet with Eric Richter, who is going to be working with that, and he can give you the details on that trip. But I'm going to give you a heads up today that that's going to be next Sunday, April 13th, following our assembly in room 210. Now this morning we're going to be looking at Solomon, and we're going to begin with a word of prayer and then jump right into this text. Father, how thankful we are that you're the kind of God that, that is not just powerful in creating the world and causing us, as we see the, the beauty of sunsets and, and mountains and since the power of oceans and uh, how significant, insignificant we are when we stand in front of the Grand Canyon. and We're thankful that You're so powerful in Your Word as well. That we can read uh, a passage out of Hebrews and be so emotionally overcome by it, Father, that uh, tears well up in our eyes in thinking of the greatness of Your loving kindness to us. We're thankful, Father, that, that You are powerful in Your world. world. We're, we're thankful that You are powerful in Your Word. And we're thankful that You are powerful in our lives, changing us into images uh, of Jesus, of thinking as He thought, and acting and doing and speaking, and all of our affections, all of our emotional life coming into a likeness of Your Son, Jesus. And it's our prayer, Father, that as we, we go through the study this morning, that, 
that your word will speak powerfully to us, but we will also realize that, that you are changing us. That you have called us to be your disciples. And that in so doing, Father, that we are to change and to become more conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus with each passing day. And that you do this, Father, in our lives. Thank you, Father, for this word. We pray that you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Very quickly, we won't spend much time here uh, because I think we're getting the gist of the statement, but a statement that we're using at the beginning of all of our messages that deal with uh, Genesis all the way through Revelation, every book of the Bible and all the characters of the Bible and the messages, the wisdom literature of the Bible, all of that is this, that the Bible that we, we hold precious in our hands is not a collection of random stories. It's not just a hodgepodge. It's just not people throwing things together and, and getting lucky. This is God who has put together a collection of stories to teach us one story. It's about God. It's about man. It's about what went wrong with God's good creation and what God is doing to put it back together. And that story continues with King David. Now, last Sunday night, or excuse me, last Sunday morning, we saw that, that David was really wanting to build a house for God. Uh, David had this nice house built out of cedar. It was the first time he had actually owned a house like this. He had been on the run for most of his, his adult life. And now that the kingdom had been established and he now has this house made out of cedar, he wants to build a house out of cedar for God. And God says, that's a great idea. It's just not going to happen. In fact, a surprising thing is going to happen. God is going to build for David a house. And it's not just going to be any kind of a house. David is thinking about a physical structure. God says, you're not going to build for me a house, but I'm going to build for you a dynastic house. There is going to be a dynasty of kings that are going to, to rule and represent my kingdom throughout eternity. And it's going to start with a son of David by the name of Solomon. Now, you know, that's a name we've heard all of our lives. Solomon this, Solomon that. There are companies called Solomon. There are skis called Solomon. It's a very, very common name. In Hebrew, it is a name that is associated with the Hebrew word shalom. And so if you were to say, if, Solomon, if King Solomon was, was in our midst today, we would refer to him as King Shlomo. And his name, as you know, is associated with wisdom. When you think of Solomon, you think of wisdom. He, he wrote the Proverbs. He wrote, he wrote uh, the, the wisdom literature of, of Ecclesiastes and, and Song of Solomon. We associate Solomon with wisdom. And yet, the irony of it is that he comes into the world in an act of unadulterated foolishness on the part of his father David and his mother Bathsheba. And here's a summary statement about Solomon. A man of God's wisdom comes into the world as the result of human foolishness. A man of God's wisdom comes into the world as the result of of human foolishness. Another way of saying it, probably a better way of saying it, is a wise king comes into the world as the result of human foolishness. Now, the story of Solomon begins actually in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David, his father, is middle-aged. He's in Jerusalem. It's the springtime and the armies of Israel have gone out to fight the battles. But David is kind of middle-aged right now and he's tired and he, he's not needed the way that he once was to lead those armies into battle. And so he stays in Jerusalem. And one of those evenings, David is on the roof of his house 
And he's walking around on top of the roof and he's surveying his kingdom when he notices a very beautiful woman bathing on the house or the house next to his. And the Bible goes to great length. The Bible emphasizes that this woman was gorgeous. She was absolutely beautiful. And the sight of this woman, this beautiful woman bathing, grips David and, and captures David and gets a hold of David. And he decides to send for her, although the servants are sort of hinting around that this, this woman that he is captivated by and sending for to bring to his own house is actually the wife of another man, and not just another man, but a, a, a very good friend, and not just a very good friend, but one of David's mighty men, a guy by the name of Uriah the Hittite. But here's the thing. It's kind of a perfect scenario. Her husband is off fighting battles for Israel, so he's not around. She's home alone. He's home alone. And so David insists, go and get her. And you know how the story ends up? She ends up going over to David's palace. And by the time that sort of that little uh, reunion is done, she, she ends up pregnant by David. And David is a little bit nervous now because something terrible has happened to him personally. And so David sends for Uriah to come home from the front thinking that nature will take its own course and everyone will think that the baby belongs to Uriah and they'll get the timetables just right. But here's the thing about Uriah. Uriah is a loyal soldier and his integrity will not allow him to enjoy being home while his comrades in arms are out in the battlefield suffering. And so if David is, is going to be thwarted that way, David is going to take measures up a notch. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to uh, do something a little bit different so that the strategy will work. And so he gets Uriah inebriated before sending him back home a second time. But Uriah will not be with his wife as long as his brothers in arms are suffering in battle. And so David says, well, if that's the way it's going to be, uh, he sends Uriah back to battle with some instructions to General Joab to put Uriah at the sharpest place of the attack where the fighting is most ferocious. And then when that battle gets to a, a, a ferocious pitch, to pull back from, from Uriah so that he can be killed. And that's exactly what happens. Joab sends him to the front. The, the fighting gets fierce. And the arrows are flying. And, 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 and the blood is, 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 is everywhere. And Joab signals for the army to pull back, leaving Uriah and some of his fellow soldiers out there sort of surrounded and they are murdered and slaughtered by their enemy. And Joab sends a message back to David that Uriah is dead and he's not really sure how David is going to react because it's such a funny thing that David has asked Joab to do. But David, David is philosophical about the whole thing. Just sort of philosophical about it. In verse 25, David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. It happens. It's battle. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And so David, David the man who is after God's own heart, thinks that he has gotten away with murder, literally. And Bathsheba hears that Uriah, her husband, is dead. She mourns her husband. But when the time of the mourning has passed, David takes Bathsheba as his wife and she gives birth to a son. And David thinks that he's gotten himself off the hook, that he has escaped embarrassment, that he has escaped the, 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 uh, the, the rumors and, and the crime. But this part of the story ends with these words. 
Verse 27, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David thinks I've escaped. Nobody knows. I've taken care of it. But God sees. And in the beginning of the very next chapter, chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David and David repents. And there are these huge, tremendous, brutal consequences that David is going to pay. There is a price to pay for his, for his sin. And it begins with the baby of David and Bathsheba dying. And then in verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her, made love to her. She gave birth to a son. And they named him what? Solomon, the man of wisdom. The name associated with wisdom is born in those circumstances. But the, the, the verse continues, the Lord loved and David's life from this point is saturated with grief. It's grief with never-ending grief. The sword will never leave David's house. There is that inner nesting debacle where David's son Absalom kills his stepbrother Amnon because Amnon raped Absalom's sister Tamar. And then Absalom, some years later, is killed by General Joab because Absalom is, has, his life has gotten away from him as well like his father's, and Absalom raises an army and tries to, to, to get a coup d'etat going in Jerusalem and forces David out of Jerusalem, and he's trying to take over, but this Absalom is killed by General Joab during that, that failed coup. And finally, after some time, the David story comes to an end, and we read in First Chronicles 29, verse 27, that he ruled over Israel 40 years, seven in Hebron, 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. And his son Solomon succeeded him as king. Well, the, the transition is not quite as simple or as easy as, as First Chronicles makes it look. Adonijah, the fourth oldest son of David, is now the oldest surviving son. And although David has made it clear that Solomon is going to succeed him, that David has made clear for nearly two years now that Solomon is going to be the king, General Joab kind of disagrees with that decision. It ought to be Adonijah. And, and Adonijah decides that General Joab is right, and because I've got the army behind me, I'm going to insist that I become king. And it begins another scuffle in, in Jerusalem, and when the dust settles over the dispute over who the true king is, both Adonijah and Joab are executed. And now Solomon is the third king of Israel. Why wisdom? Why Solomon? Why, why is wisdom such an important part of the biblical story about God and about man and what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 3, the first three verses, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. And it's right after this text that, that two of the most famous stories about Solomon take place. 
In, in this text, as it continues, God appears to Solomon at Gibeon one night and says, uh, Solomon, ask me for whatever you like for me to give you. Ask of me anything that you wish for me to give to you. And this is what Solomon asks for. Verse 9, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. And as you know from the text that at the, at verse 10 I, that Greg read for us just a couple of minutes ago, God is incredibly pleased with this request for wisdom. And then in verse 11, God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then immediately following this is another very curious story involving two harlots who come in and they stand before King Solomon. And the story is there are these two harlots, these two prostitutes who have just given birth to these babies. And this incredibly horrific event takes place one night as, as they're sleeping with these children, one of these women rolls over on top of her baby. The baby dies. She, in her desperation and in her anguish and in her grief, switches the baby with the, the live baby for the dead baby with the other harlot, with the other woman. And when this woman wakes up and begins to feed that baby, she notices that it's dead and it's not hers. And now they are standing in front of Solomon to settle the dispute to whom the living baby belongs to. And unfortunately, this thing becomes a she said, she said kind of scenario because the Bible says there were no witnesses in the house. There was no one there to, to corroborate any of the story. So how in the world is Solomon going to solve this riddle? And what he decides to do after giving it some thought, he says, bring me a sword and this is what we're going to do. We're going to... We're going to cut this baby, divide this baby in two, and one woman is going to get half, and the other woman is going to get the other half. And the true mother, as you know the story goes, says, no, let the baby live with, with the other woman. Let the baby live. Don't divide the baby up. She can have it. Let the baby live. And the other harlot says, no, that's not going to happen. He shall be neither mine or yours. Divide him. Then the king gave this ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. And when all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Wisdom is an incredibly important thing. It is an incredibly important thing to have in this life not, not just in trials and not just in cases, but in all of life. And if you've not experienced the need for wisdom in your life by this time, there's going to be some time in the future where you're going to need, and you're going to feel it acutely and keenly, the need to have some wisdom to be able to discern what is the right thing to do. You've taken the wrong job. Or you've started dating the wrong person. Or, or maybe you didn't listen to, to Uncle Dave Ramsey and, and you've made some bad financial decisions. 
There is a definition for wisdom that, that I want us to memorize. It, it's not original to me, so don't attribute it to me. But it is, it is a definition of wisdom that I, that I think just cuts to the heart of what real true wisdom and biblical wisdom is all about. It's this here. Wisdom is competence in regard to life's realities. Wisdom is competence in regard to life's realities. In fact, let's say that together as a church. Wisdom is competence in regard to life's reality. Let's say it again. Wisdom is competence in regard to life's realities. That is a definition of wisdom I want you to memorize. Now, have you ever asked the question, why does your life blow up? Why does your life blow up? Why, why does it seem that when you're making some decisions that seem pretty smart to you, or at least seem satisfactory to you, that your life all of a sudden blows up? Well, the reason is you didn't make a competent decision in light of life's realities. And when you think about life and you think that the way that it's lived, there are at least two places where you need wisdom in this life. The first one is this, and there are probably more. Let's just talk about two this morning, though. But the first one is wisdom is needed for the forks in the road. You're living your life, you're going day by day, you're living your life, and all of a sudden you come to a fork in the road. There's a decision that has to be made. Do I take this job or do I take another job? Do I marry this person or do I remain single? Do I, I say something or do I remain silent? Do I remain quiet? There's a fork in the road and you need wisdom to understand to go to the right or to go to the left. And here's something interesting. You know, When you think about it, you'll probably agree with me. There are probably more forks in the road today in this culture, in this generation, than there ever have been in the history of the world. In traditional, older cultures, lots of decisions were, were made for you. Who you were going to marry. That was already settled. Sometimes that was settled before you were even born. And a lot of times it was settled before you were even out of diapers. Who you are going to marry? In traditional, older Ancient cultures, what you did for a living was already decided for you. You were born into a family of carpenters. You were born into a family of, of, of dairymen. You were born into a family of, of shoemakers. What you did for a living was already decided for you. Uh, where you lived, where you lived was already settled for you. This is your town. This is where you live. This is where the roots are. This is where your family is. It's a crazy thing to go live someplace else. In fact, that's one of the reasons why uh, Jesus' family is upset with him and think that he is out of his mind. is because he has left the place where he grew up, Nazareth, and has moved to a completely different kind, not just a village, but a city, Capernaum. Those things were already settled for you. And people have always had forks in the road but, but it, where they needed wisdom, but now more than ever. So what is it that you need? The Bible says that it's wisdom. Proverbs 4, verse 7, the beginning of, of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. <laughs> That's in the Bible. Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. Become a wise person. Get wisdom. Learn to live your life in a competent way, in light and in regard to the, uh, the, uh, the, the realities of the life that you're living. And so the question is this. Where do you go to get that kind of wisdom? Where do you go? You know, in the ancient world, rulers or leaders of people were considered to be the embodiment and the possessors of, of wisdom in the ancient world. 
That's why Israel went to Moses to get judgments and why Jethro had to say, these people are going to drive you insane and, and literally drive you into your grave unless you get some help because you cannot handle all of the decisions you have to make. You've got to divvy it up. And that's why these two women go to King Solomon. And when you think about the way that wisdom is talked about in the Bible, wisdom comes from a, a, a source, and that source is who you have put yourself under the authority of. And so the question for us is, who have we placed in authority above us? Who are we under, have submitted ourselves to, and to their authority? Who is it that when you get to a fork in the road and you have to make a serious decision about your life, that you find the wisdom? That's, for instance, if it's money. If money is the most important thing, if money and lots of it is the thing that drives you and it's your God and it's the thing that you have sort of submitted yourself to it, getting money and getting lots of it, then when you come to that fork in the road and it's either I've got to do the thing that's right and has integrity or I'm going to cut corners in order to get this money, then that kind of wisdom is going to say, you know, cutting corners to get more money because that's the goal is the thing you need to do. And it seems wise until you run into the feds. Or if, if your God or the thing that you have placed yourself under authority to is, let's just say, pleasure. And you think that pleasure is the highest value in life, that whatever I need, I, you know, I've got to do to have pleasure in this life, I'm going to do it. When you come to that fork in the road, and it's, you know, sometimes a, a, a life and death situation, you come to that fork in the road, and what are you going to do? Well, you know, when you're inebriated and getting behind, you know, getting behind the wheel of that car seems like the smart thing to do. Psalm 111, verse 10 says, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible doesn't mince any words. The Bible says over and over again, you need wisdom. You know what you need in this life? You know what the beginning of wisdom is? Get wisdom. But you know where the beginning of wisdom is? When you are in awe of God. And God is revered in your heart. That is the beginning of you becoming a wise person. So you need that wisdom for the forks in the road. You also need that wisdom in those places where the rules don't help. When you think about cases before judges, think about trials, the judges are always helped in their rulings and with their decision making by laws. Lots and lots of laws. Lots and lots of books. And when it comes to a decision, you look up the law, you find what the law says, and then the judge gives the decision. There are rules that help judges make judgments. But in the case of these two women, these two harlots who have come, uh, have come before Solomon, the rules do not help. The law of Moses said that you know when you have a case, and there's a trial, and you need to make a judgment, you need evidence. And you know how you establish evidence? You have to have how many? Two or more witnesses. But we've already heard in 1 Kings chapter 3 that there, were no, there was nobody else in the house. It was just these two women. That's why it became a she said, she said. And Solomon has to use wisdom to discern what is the right thing to do. And the wisdom of God he uses to settle the case is brilliant. He, nev not first, he never intended to divide this baby up. That, that was never part of it. I mean... You know, the, the sword was not the answer. It was the reaction to the sword that he was looking for. I mean, if the sword had been the answer in the judgment, when the other woman said, no, 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 don't, don't kill him. Let him live with the other baby. Solomon would have said, nope, this is the judgment. We're going to divide the baby. 
But it was the reaction. That's what he was looking for. That's what, what he, was, he was seeking for. And all the people are amazed by his teaching. And there's just a, this amazing little story about God blessing somebody with wisdom and how that blessed other people. But there's a, an interesting piece that nobody really talks about and, and really thinks about, I think, when it comes to this particular story with these two prostitutes, harlots, standing before the king. And the interesting piece is this. Two harlots are standing before the king. I mean, where does that happen? You know, it's become sort of vogue whenever a president of the United States, Democratic or Republican, when he gets up before Congress to give the State of the Union, what does he do? If he, he, they begin to, to have people stand in the audience, and all of these people are considered in one way or another heroes. If you want to get in before the president, if you want to get in before the king, something heroic has got to, to happen in your life, or you do something heroic in order to be recognized by the king and brought into his presence. You have to win a Super Bowl. You have to win a World Series. You have to win a gold medal. I don't know if you've looked at me lately, but I'm not going to be winning any gold medals anytime soon. I, you know, I, I, most of us do not live our lives heroically in the sense that heroic is used in, in our culture right now. What is unique and amazing about this story is that there is a somebody who treats two nobodies like somebody. Do you know what we all need? We need a wise king. Once there was another son of David who was teaching in and around Jerusalem. And one day he's being put to the test. And he says to them, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. And it was through the wisdom of God that looked like defeat on the cross, but in reality was a defeat of evil and wickedness. And that's why Paul writes to the church in Corinth, the first chapter, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. There are people that look at Jesus dying on the cross and they think that that is the dumbest thing that they could ever imagine happening to anybody in their life. Why would we talk about it? Why would we have a meal together every week where we commemorate it? It is foolishness, but to those of us who are saved... It is the power of God that a somebody saving nobodies by making them somebodies. And going back to that book that Jeff read a portion of during our communion devotional, chapter 2, verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Every time I read that passage out of Hebrews chapter 2, I, I just there's something that goes up and down my spine. That, that this somebody who did not... E who did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became like us. Born in obscurity, raised in obscurity, 
but live the life that we should have always lived. Live the life that we could never live. And because of that love for people like you and me, died the death that we should have died. So that a nobody like me and a nobody like you, in rebellion against God, tearing the good creation up, going through relationships and creating pain and, and, and suffering by in, you know, words we don't think about very deeply and we're just saying because of a corrupted emotional life at times, being self-centered, that He would take nobodies like us and turn them into somebodies, and not just somebodies, but somebody that He looks at. And through the wisdom of God, the cross looks at them, looks at us, looks at me, looks at you, and sees brother and sister. Family. To me, that is one of the most amazing things that I can ever imagine. That's one of the most amazing things that I can never get my mind around, to be honest with you. But it's something that it should capture every one of our hearts, capture all of our imagination, and change us in the way that we live in this community. So that when we find ourselves in adversity and we find ourselves in trial, we find ourselves in those moments of, of difficulty, there is a poise and a buoyancy in which we're able to handle it, a, a, a graciousness in which we're able to speak in those moments because of what Christ has accomplished for us in love and joy. And if you've never experienced that, the cleansing of your conscience, the forgiveness of your sins, the Creator of the world, the Christ Himself looking at you and saying, family. Then you need to experience that today. And maybe you've never confessed Jesus to be Lord. And maybe you've, you've never, what the Bible calls repentance, which is basically a coming to your senses and saying, the way that I've been living my life is not very wise. I choose the wisdom of God. I choose this day to be wise by getting wisdom. And the beginning of that wisdom is the fear of God. The awe, the respect, the worship, the, the, the submission to God Himself. And to be baptized and have your sins washed away and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that helps through sanctification and through the process of making you holy to make you look like Christ. And where there is no self-control to find self-control and where you've been mean to find gentleness and kindness and where you've been at war inside of yourself to find peace and peace in relationships and peace with people that you've been at war with because you have peace with God and God has peace with you. And to join the family of God for all of eternity. If that describes you this morning, while we're singing this next song, some of our shepherds are going to come down here to the front. If that describes you, we ask you this day, what is the smartest thing you could do? What's the smartest thing you could do today but give your life wholeheartedly, without reservation, to Christ Himself? If that describes you this morning, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Hark the gentle voice of Jesus falling.